Good evening. Again, it's a great privilege uh, for me to be able to bring God's Word tonight uh, during this year's summer preaching series. Uh, thank you for the opportunity that you give me as a church to serve you in this way, and may all glory be to God as he uses his servant to point you to, to him through his word. Uh, let us pray and we'll begin. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, uh, we thank you, Lord, for this time, this blessing that you give us to gather together as one people to hear from your word. Help me, Lord, to correctly divide your truth, and may we put these things in practice in our daily lives. We thank you for Christ. We thank you for his atoning work on the cross. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. The passage that I selected to preach, John 5, 39 through 47, is where we can see where the Lord is speaking to a group of Jews that are supposedly very zealous for God. But they don't see that it's the scriptures themselves that bore witness about Jesus standing before them. I have titled this sermon, The Preeminence of Christ in All the Scriptures. And the words of the Lord in this passage have helped me and caused me to seek to better understand the Old Testament and to keep the person and work of Christ at the forefront of my mind as I study and as I learn more about the Scriptures. And the words of the Lord in this passage, the theme being verses that have helped us the most, has confronted my own legalism, my own pride, my own self-righteousness, and reminded me that Jesus is preeminent above everything, as the Bible is the story about our redemption through him. In this passage, we have recorded the words of the Savior boldly telling the Jews that the Messiah, the Anointed One, has come. For context, Jesus is addressing the group of Jews who are not seeking to, who were seeking to kill him, not only because he was breaking the Sabbath, according to their misunderstanding of it, by healing the invalid man at the pool, but also because he was calling God his own father, making him equal with God. We see this in verse 17 of chapter 5. The Lord says, My father is working until now, and I am working. And in verse 19, Truly, truly, I say to you, the son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the father doing. For whatever the father does, that the son does likewise. Jesus was not throwing subtle hints. He was not speaking in riddles or parables. He was not even humbly claiming to be equal with God. No, he was doing so boldly. And the Jews knew this. And we know that the Jews knew this. If we read John 5.18, it says, This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. As we continue looking at the context of our passage, Jesus would stand firm on his claims about his equality with the father. But he also did so in a way that 
the Jews considered to be a valid claim. He says in John 5.31, If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. He knew that Jewish law recognized the validity of someone's claim if they had two or three witnesses. And this law was based off of Deuteronomy 19.15, which reads, Only on the evidence of two or three witnesses shall a charge be established. So Jesus would go on to confirm his testimony of who he was, and he would do so. He would back up his claims by the very standards acceptable to the Jews he was addressing. The three witnesses he calls on leading up to our passage are John the Baptist, his own works or miracles, and the Father himself. Beginning with the witness of John the Baptist, we read in the Bible that when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask John the Baptist who he was, John the Baptist told them clearly, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. John had identified himself as the forerunner. And then we also read in the Gospels that many Jews, even Pharisees, were in attendance during John's baptisms. In verse 35 of our, of our chapter 5, Jesus tells the Jews that they were willing to rejoice for a while in John's light, meaning that they had to have accepted John's testimony at some point. They at least must have accepted him as a prophet because we read that they rejoiced for a while in John's light. Now, Jesus did not need the testimony of any man, for he is God incarnate and he is truth. Nevertheless, as Jesus says in verse 34, not that the testimony that I receive is from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. The second witness to Jesus' testimony are his very works. Just in the book of John alone, in the chapters before chapter 5, we see Jesus knew Nathanael's name and location under the fig tree while he was still a far ways off. He had turned the water into, into wine at the wedding of Cana. He knew about the Samaritan woman's husband situation. He had healed the official son. And Jesus confirms his works as a witness in verse 36. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. Which leads to our third witness that Jesus calls on, the Father himself. Jesus tells them that by not believing in the, one, in the one whom the Father had sent, they show that they do not have his word abiding in them. We see this in verse 37. And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. And if we look at 1 John 5, 9-12, it, it reads, If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. For this is the testimony of God that he has borne concerning his Son. Whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar, because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his Son. And this is the testimony 
that God gave us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. So by not believing the testimony that the Father gave concerning his own Son, these Jews were making God out to be a liar. As we get into our passage now, we see that Jesus has already established three witnesses. And as we continue to see this interaction, we see that there are even more witnesses. Namely, the witness of Scripture, which is the first point. Secondly, we will see the refusal in verses 40 through 44. And lastly, the witness of their beloved Moses in verses 45 through 47. So, as we begin with our first point, I'm going to read verse 39 of our passage one more time. It reads, You search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me. Here Jesus tells the Jews, you search the scriptures, you read, you study, you memorize, you recite, you dedicate your life to the scriptures. On top of these things, the religious Jews would also strap phylacteries, which were small square leather boxes containing portions of scripture. They would strap these on their forehead and on their arm. And they did this based on commands in Deuteronomy that they took literally to bind the commandments as a sign on their hand and as frontlets between their eyes. They had a high regard for the scriptures, but not a high regard for whom the scriptures were about. When they read the law, their attempt, their aim was to live by the law, not recognizing that the law shows us how truly everyone falls short of the standards of a holy God. The law should have caused them to seek mercy and to look to the promised redemption from God. But instead, they thought that they could actually keep God's law. And an example of this is the rich young ruler whom uh, whom Jesus interacted with, and he told Jesus that he had kept the commandments from his youth. These Jews treasured the word of God in written form, but did not treasure the word of God in human form. They did not want God's Messiah. They wanted their own Messiah that would conquer their earthly enemies and restore their kingdom on this earth. They sought to find eternal life through the scriptures by looking inwardly to their ancestry, personal obedience, religious practices, and observances. But Jesus defines eternal life in John 17, 3, which reads, And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. By not believing, by having no desire to know the Messiah that had come, they were failing to believe God. Eternal life comes from God. And God had received, revealed himself through audible word, incarnate word, and written word. So it was no secret that Jesus was claiming to be the Son of God. He was claiming to be and is the Messiah. As we continue to the second part of verse 39, it reads, It is the scriptures that bear witness about me. 
So looking back at some examples from Scripture that the Jews already had, the Jews failed to see that Jesus is the descendant of Abraham and whom all the nations of the earth would be blessed, as Moses wrote. Jesus is the righteous branch descending from the line of David who will reign for eternity as Jeremiah prophesied. Jesus is the son born of a virgin who would be called God with us, as Isaiah prophesied. He fulfilled the prophecy of Micah by being born in Bethlehem and the prophecy in Hosea that the Messiah would be called out of Egypt when Jesus was brought back to Nazareth after King Herod had died. And perhaps these next examples of Christ in the scriptures might have been partially veiled to the Jews at the time. But beginning with Genesis, after Adam and Eve sinned, God promised redemption through a certain he that would crush the head of the serpent, having to be bruised on his heel in the process. This pointed forward to when Christ would suffer the sting of death as he would atone for the sins of his people on the cross, fulfilling the promise of redemption. Staying in Genesis, when an innocent animal had to be sacrificed, so its its skins could cover the nakedness of Adam and Eve. This pointed forward to God covering the sins of his people through the sacrifice of his son, the unblemished lamb of God. The promise to Abraham in Genesis 12, 17, when the Lord promised him that to his offspring he would give that land, did refer to the nation of Israel, but it was fulfilled finally in Jesus Galatians 3.16 reads, Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. As we move on, when the Jews celebrated the Passover, they commemorated the escape of the Israelites from Egypt, not realizing that the Passover lamb foreshadowed the sacrifice of a Messiah who would need to become their Passover. Jesus, like the Passover sacrifice, was a mature male with no broken bones at the time of his death, spotless, without blemish, slain to cover for others, whom when God sees his blood, passes over those who have placed their faith in him. What was written regarding animal sacrifices was also to point forward to the final and perfect sacrifice of Jesus. Hebrews, Hebrews 10.1 reads, For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Continuing with Christ in the Old Testament, God feeding his people in the wilderness, manna, and providing them with water from a rock, also pointed forward to Christ, as he would say in John 6, that he is the living bread that came down from heaven. And in John 7, he cried out that if anyone thirsts, let him come to him and drink. In Numbers 21, after the Israelites spoke against God and against Moses, the Lord sent serpents among the people, killing them, if they got bit. And in order to live, 
They had to look to the bronze serpent set on a pole that the Lord had Moses make. They had to look to the very reminder of their judgment and sin, which was the bronze serpent. Jesus makes this connection to himself when he says to Nicodemus in John 3, 14, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. Just as the Israelites in the time of Moses had to look to the serpent to live, the people in Jesus' time and future generations, including us, need to look to Christ, the very reminder of our judgment and sin, as our only means to be saved. And to summarize, as the prophets brought God's word to the people, as the priests presented God to the people and the people to God, which including mediating sacrifices to God on their behalf, and how godly kings brought God's rule to the people, Jesus performs all three functions, all three offices of prophet, priest, and king in the final and perfect way. As prophet, Jesus not only spoke the word of God to the people, he is the word of God sent to the people in order that the world might be saved. As priest, Jesus lives to make intercession and provides the final and perfect sacrifice that can cover sin, unlike that of bulls and goats. Hebrews 7, 26 to 27, For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then those, for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. And as king, Jesus, the son of David, reigns as the greater David in perfect righteousness and justice, and his throne, his kingdom, is established forever. In Samuel Renihan's book, The Mystery of Christ, His Covenant, and His Kingdom, Renihan writes this, Jesus taught that the good news, the gospel of the kingdom, was that he was going to offer himself up as a sacrifice, that he would rise from the dead, and that he would grant eternal life to all those who trusted in him. The kingdom proclaimed by the Christ was not a kingdom of this world, it was a kingdom from above, entered not by natural, natural birth, but by supernatural birth, belonging not to those born of the flesh, but those born of the spirit, belonging not to those born of Abraham's body, but his belief, end quote. We can see why many Jews, especially the religious leaders, would be provoked by this teaching. They wanted a kingdom of this world entered by their physical ancestry. They had a zeal for God, but not according to true knowledge of the righteousness of God. As Pastor Rolo often reminds us that God's righteousness, the righteousness of Jesus, is an alien righteousness. He reminds us that it does not originate from us, that it doesn't belong to us. Rather, it is imputed to us on behalf of Jesus' life and work on the cross. And then Paul writes this of the Israelites in Romans 10, 3 through 4. It says, For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. 
And he writes in 2 Corinthians 3, 14 through 16, But their minds were hardened, for to this day, when they read the Old Covenant, that same veil remains unlifted, because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts, but when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. One could never find eternal life in the scriptures if one did not find Christ. Amen. Better yet, better yet if Christ did not find us. Even after Christ's claim that the scriptures bear witness about him, the Jews refused to come to him. We see the refusal. The second point, beginning in verse 40, it reads, Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. Even though what they had of the scripture so far bore witness about Jesus, yet they refused to come to him. They refused to come to the only one that could give them eternal life. And not only did they call him a liar, but they called him a blasphemer. The light had come into the world, and they loved the darkness rather than the light. He came to his own, and his own did not receive him. By refusing to come to Jesus, they were refusing to come to God. If these Jews would have come to Jesus, they certainly would have had eternal life. They would have passed from judgment and death to forgiveness and life. If we refuse to come to Christ today, we're in the same situation. We, we don't have life. Not coming to him in repentance and faith is rejecting him. Even if one claims to be neutral about Jesus, or if one is just indifferent, there is no in-between. We are either in Christ where we have life, or we are still in our sins where our wages are death. Jesus said in Luke eleven twenty three, 23, whoever is not with me is against me. And Matthew 10, 32 through 33, so everyone who acknowledges me before men, I will also acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. So going back to our passage, the Jews' refusal to believe in Jesus did not change the fact that Jesus was the Christ, the very Messiah was standing before their very eyes. And as we read in our next verse in John 5, 41, Jesus says, I do not receive glory from people. Jesus didn't seek any earthly praise or affirmation from the people. He was only interested in one thing, and it was doing the will of his Father. The works that he did were aligned with the will of the Father. And he knew the superficiality of the people, that many sought to be healed and fed, but not willing to take up their cross and follow him. If we turn a few pages back in John 2, 23 to 25, 
is, it reads this. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to wear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. In other words, as Jesus is calling up witnesses, there's no need for a cross-examination. He doesn't need the affirmation of men. And like the religious Jews, many times we also do seek to receive glory from people. Many times we seek praise and recognition, but we should have the mind of Christ and do all things in obedience to the Father regardless of what people may or may not tell us. As we continue looking at the refusal, we continue with verse 42. Jesus says, But I know that you do not have the love of God within you. Because Jesus was accused of breaking the Sabbath and making himself equal with God, and because the Jews considered themselves to be doing what was pleasing in God's sight, we can imagine the rage that this statement from Jesus would have caused the Jews. The ones that supposedly had great zeal for God were being told that they did not have the love of God within them. John 3.19, And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. And some of the evil works that we can see the Jews doing, if we read in Matthew 23, Jesus says of the Jews, tying up the heavy burdens of the law and laying them on people's shoulders, but not willing to move them with a single finger, doing their deeds to be seen by others, loving the places of honor at feasts and the best seats in the synagogues, and they loved the greetings in the marketplaces, being called rabbi by others. The Jews were unwilling to receive Jesus, who was coming in the name of the Father, but as Jesus tells them in verse 43, if another comes in his own name, you will receive him. It would be easier for the Jews to receive a Messiah that came in his own name because they did not want a meek and humble Messiah. They didn't want a Messiah that preached repentance, faith, and self-denial. They wanted a Messiah with political, military power. They wanted someone mighty, someone they could fall behind, someone they could admire. And after the death of Christ, we see in history, in the book of Acts, affirming this to be true. In Acts 5, 36-37, it reads, For before these days, Theodos rose up, claiming to be somebody and a number of men, about 400, joined him. He was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. After him, 
Judas, the Galilean, rose up in the days of the census and drew away some of the people after him. He too perished, and all who followed him were scattered. So these are examples of men coming in their own name and drawing away what likely included Jewish followers. These messiahs would die and stay dead, and as a result, their followers would disband. But Jesus Christ, the true Messiah, died, but he would not stay dead. And his followers are continuing to grow in number to this very day. So there was a major obstacle, a major sin that was at the root of the refusal by these Jews. We read it in the next verse of our passage in verse 44. Verse 44 in chapter 5 reads, How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? So Jesus is telling them, you cannot believe because you're receiving glory, praise, and affirmation from one another. They did not seek the glory of grace and mercy, which is from God. Rather, they sought glory from one another. They had made an idol of this. Those that thought themselves teachers of the law could not make it past even the first commandment. Their satisfaction was the praise that they got from knowing about the scriptures, not knowing that it should have been in whom the scriptures pointed to. Our satisfaction also needs to be in the Lord Jesus. Not in anything else, not even in the good things that he blesses us with. Many times, these idols that we create for ourselves is at the root of our unbelief. Because if we don't believe that Jesus is everything and that only Jesus can truly satisfy our souls, we will look to other things. Basically, telling God that we do not believe that we have everything in his son. Some questions that we can ask ourselves. Do we study the scriptures to know God more? Or just to know more than the person next to us and win the next debate? And is our study of the scriptures leading to real life application and greater humility or to complacency and pride? Let us not use the scriptures to sin against others or to seek glory for ourselves. Rather, let us search them to know more profoundly the one whom they bear witness about. Let us search the scriptures with the desire to be conformed into the image of Christ. If you have not repented and believed in Christ for salvation, you find yourself in the same hopeless situation as these Jews who refuse to come to Jesus that they may have life. Like the Jews in Jesus' time, many people today think that they have salvation by their works, by their religious activities, by their good deeds, by association to a particular group or because of the affirmation and praise that they receive from others that they're good people. However, none of these things have the power to declare you not guilty before a holy God. 
Only the righteousness of his own son is acceptable. And it is only obtainable by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. We now get to our last point, the witness of Moses. Starting in verse 44, it reads, Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. When Jesus came into the world the first time, he did not come to condemn the world, but very clearly that the first time. Because John 3.17 says that God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. And I emphasize the first time because the Bible teaches that on Jesus' second coming, the purpose is to return to judge and to condemn. What Jesus came to do on his first coming was to proclaim the gospel. He preached that the kingdom of God was at hand and to repent and believe in the gospel. And he came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. He did not come to abolish the law or the prophets, but to fulfill them, as it says in Matthew 5, 17. He came to offer reconciliation and forgiveness of sins. He came to perfectly obey God's holy law on behalf of his people. But the people, the Jews, were still trying to measure themselves up against the law of Moses. They were coming up under the accusation of Moses and the law because the law shows a person how indeed everyone fails to meet God's standard of holiness and righteousness. Now the point of Jesus saying that Moses accused them was not to antagonize Moses or to oppose Moses, rather to help them to see their, na- their need of him, the Savior. <clears throat> we need to be very careful not to do away with the law ourselves because the law is God's standard of holiness and righteousness and the law is, is good. We are called to both believe in Christ and obey the moral law. And we're called to be holy as he is holy. But we need to have it very clear that it's impossible to do so without Christ. As a preacher once said, The law was given that grace might be sought. Grace was given that the law might be fulfilled. In his book, The Law and the Gospel, the late Ernie Reisinger make some observations about the relationship between Christ and Moses. He writes this, It is important to see how Moses and the law establish Christ and the gospel. There is no opposition. The law exposes the sinfulness of man through the servant Moses, whereas the gospel manifests the mercy of God through Christ the King. The law sentences living man to death. The gospel brings dead men to life. Moses came down Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the law that condemned sinners. Christ went up to Mount Calvary for condemned sinners. And lastly, he writes, the law demands righteousness from man, whereas the gospel brings righteousness to man. 
not only did the law given to Moses accuse them, but also Moses himself prophesied about Jesus' coming. It is why Jesus says in verse 46, For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. Now, we've already gone over some of the different shadows and different types of Christ. But many commentators, uh, even though Jesus didn't make direct reference to it, but many commentators cite Deuteronomy 18, 15 through 18, Deuteronomy 18, 15 through 18 as a a specific passage that Jesus could have been referring to. It reads in the words of Moses, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. And the second half of verse 18, he continues, And the Lord said to me, And I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. And then, interestingly enough, the words, It is to him you shall listen, also resonate with what God said about Jesus at the transfiguration with with Moses there. Luke 9.35 And a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my son, my my chosen one. Listen to him. Jesus is the prophet that Moses was referring to, but Jesus is not just a prophet. He's also priest and king. Looking back, At the passage in Deuteronomy, Moses prophesied that Jesus would have the words of God in his mouth and would speak everything the Father commanded. So Jesus is saying to these Jews, if you truly believe Moses as you say you do, you would believe that I am who I say I am because Moses is referring to me. Jesus concludes his interaction with these Jews. Verse 47 But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? Jesus makes this final claim to the Jews that they do not even believe the writings of Moses himself. He puts his verbal words at the same level of sacred scripture, which is accurate. If they did not believe the word of God in written form, how could they believe the word of God in the flesh? They sought the scriptures because they thought that in them they had eternal life, but the scriptures bear witness about salvation in Jesus and in him alone. By rejecting Jesus, they were rejecting the word of God, rejecting God the Father as they knew that Jesus was claiming equality with the Father. The searching of the scriptures should have led them to seek God's righteousness that existed outside of them, yet they looked only inwardly. They refused the Messiah that the scriptures they so fervently studied pointed to. They refused the only source of eternal life. Jesus is the fulfillment of all the prophecies they had, and the final heir of all the promises of God. A second Corinthians one twenty says, 
all the promises of God find their yes in Him. In conclusion, the intensifying anger and hostility of the Jewish leaders would lead to, Jew, to Jesus' crucifixion. Jesus' claims were seen as blasphemy. And it's ironic that they were quick to look for legal uh, arguments, right? But they gave Jesus an unjust trial and a conviction that didn't fit the crime. They even left a known criminal free in exchange for somebody that they could not find a charge for. We can't, re we can't blame the refusal on pure ignorance because it would have been possible to identify Jesus as the one Mo uh, Moses wrote about. We see evidence of this in John 1.45 when Jesus began to call his disciples. John 1.45 says, Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. The main subject of Scripture back then and continues to be today, Jesus. We cannot honor God correctly if we don't honor the Son. Honoring the Son is the way in which we glorify the Father as He is the image of the invisible God. After the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus, His claim that the Scriptures bore witness about Him still held true and would allow His followers to be able to share the Gospel with even more clarity, continuing to point out that Jesus fulfilled the Scriptures. We read several examples of Paul doing this in the book of Acts. Acts 17, 2-3 reads, And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, this Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. Another example in Acts 28, 23-24, And when they had appointed a day for him, they came to him at his lodging in greater numbers. From morning till evening he expounded to them, testifying to the kingdom of God and trying to convince them about Jesus, both from the law of Moses and from the prophets. And some were convinced by what he said, but others disbelieved. The evidence in Jesus' favor that he is the Messiah and that there is eternal life in him is encouraging to those of us who believe. Praise God that he gave us eyes to see and ears to hear. But to those that do not believe, your unbelief does not change the fact that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. He did not condemn, uh, come to condemn the world the first time, but in his second coming, he will return to judge. There is no salvation outside of him, and our prayer as a church for those that do not know Christ 
is that you may come to saving faith in him. May we all testify that Jesus Christ is Lord. He is the one whom the scriptures bear witness about. Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for your word. We thank you, Lord, for Christ, the word in the flesh. Lord, help us to see the beauty and the glory that is in Christ. Help us to walk in holiness. Help us to be conformed to his image, Lord. And we pray, Lord, for our unbelieving friends and family members, co-workers, that you may re reveal yourself to them, Lord, that you may continue to draw more disciples to yourself. In Christ's name, amen.